Hello and welcome to Make Believe Heroes, an actual play, 5th edition, Dungeons and Dragons Adventure. I'm the Dungeon Master, your friend, your pal, and maybe your enemy. My name is Paul, and we are ready to present to you Episode 5 of Season 3.5, Cacophony. This is the penultimate episode of our miniature half-season but in a lot of ways, this might feel like a finale. In fact, if you were to use our previous seasons as a sort of guidebook for how to view this one, this would be more of the finale episode, and the next one would be more of the epilogue episode. We have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of things to do. So let me just say this. After the sixth episode of 3.5, we will have a couple of champions sessions that we'll be releasing as multiple episodes that will come out between season 3.5 and season 4. We will also be doing a Q&A, uh, another Q&A to discuss the events of 3.5. So I'll give you some information in episode 6 about how that you can be involved in that. We are really looking forward to talking with you guys, and getting into the nitty-gritty and discussing everything that happened in this short, compact season. So without any more from me, let's talk about what happened last time on Make Believe Heroes. Last time, our favorite half-elf returned to the canopy. Nephiel, along with all the druids of Fallen Grove who had gathered together to celebrate the autumnal equinox, were working in unison to create a beautiful offering for their goddess. Once they were finished, Nephiel met with Jim, and Jim informed him of all that Atonia had told him, how that the gods were moving once again on Manumi, how that Colmas was going to speak with the Dracon Kelly, and that Jim would set out on a new mission himself. That's when he was visited by a very strange and beautiful woman by the name of Talia Blackfire. Talia expressed to Nephiel how that she and her husband, Sebastian Blackfire, had traveled here to offer their aid to the canopy by means of finances and helping hands to rebuild the canopy to its former splendor. Meanwhile, as Jill was deep in the canopy undercover, she came across a strange figure bumping into a halfling who happened to be missing both of his thumbs. After a difficult and awkward conversation with Miles, she was visited by the Shiv. Phil approached the three of them, making sure that there was no trouble. As Shiv and Miles went their way, Jill marks them in her mind, determined to help this young halfling who has obviously caught himself into some serious trouble. Far away, Pauline arrives at the eastern edge of Fallen Grove, camping for the night as she is trying her best to make it to the canopy in time for the equinox. She is visited by a strange and mysterious figure by the name of Zahn. Zahn tells her that she must set off at once, giving her Paylor's blessing and pointing her toward a meeting of the dragons inside the forest. She sets off at once as Zahn disappears, revealing to her that he was more than a mere man. And finally, we see as Blackfire has Atonia trapped inside his tent, deep in the western sides of Fallen Grove, beneath a stormy and rainy sky. Atonia helplessly asks him what he plans to do with her. And that's when he revealed the spear that he had crafted from a small piece of their chains that hold the crooked father imprisoned. Taking the spear in hand, he cut her cheek, revealing that he would in fact use this weapon to kill her. And sacrificing her life, he would begin the process to set his father free. The wind blows strongly through the trees Small flecks of rain break through here and there, sprinkling the ground. It is very dark as the clouds thicken overhead. There is a small copse of tall, thin trees surrounding a short stone monolith. Atop this stone, there stands an ancient statue, completely engulfed with vines, which droop down over the front of the stone platform on which it stands. As the rain begins to thicken, the sound of footsteps can be heard through the forest, passing within the copse of trees, pressing through the tall greenery and vines that obscure it, comes Colmas. His draconic snout is obscured by his dark cloak, but the orange glow of his eyes pierces through the night. Stepping forward cautiously, he approaches the statue. He starts to draw his sword, but then... Thinking better of it, he begins pushing the vines back from the stone instead, 
careful not to tear them. It takes him some time, but eventually he's able to pull them back enough to reveal the figure and stone beneath. Here, hidden behind these trees and brush, is a statue in the perfect likeness of the goddess of autumn. Colmas might not have known had he not just met her himself some days ago. He observes the statue further, running his hands along the stone monolith beneath her feet. Engraved on the front is the Triquetra of Atonia, with words in a strange language carved beneath it. His eyes widen at these words, realizing that they are written in the language of his former mistress, the lost draconic tongue. He reads them aloud, almost involuntarily. To honor the goddess of the fall, may your power and beauty never fade, and let the comfort of your forest bring the peace Monumi so desperately desires. Temporarily transfixed, Colmas doesn't hear as someone approaches him from behind. Before even realizing that they are there, the figure grabs him, sweeping his legs out from underneath him and slamming him onto the ground. All of the air is driven from his lungs by the impact as he looks up to see his captor, gasping for air. With one knee on his chest and a gauntleted hand around his throat, Rivora the Fury leans down. Her face inches from his as her red eyes glow in the dark, hidden beneath her crimson helm. Well, hello there, vassal of Dimvarga. And here I thought you had to be true now to yourself. And yet, here you are. Did your quest for the gods lead you to disappointment, shadowling? Colmas starts to struggle, but then thinks better of it as her armored fingers tighten around his throat. Mistress Rivora, please, I mean you no offense. I have come with a very important message for you. One from the goddess Ortonia. She growls at him, unbelieving and angered by his words. But as she looks down on his dark, scaly face, she notices the strange orange glow emanating from his eyes. It is strange to her, but somehow familiar. She loosens her grip as breath flows deeply back into his lungs. Grabbing him by the collar, she drags him easily to his feet. Standing around the edge of the small ring of trees are three other figures, cloaked with their faces hidden from him. A message from Atonia, you say? Somehow I doubt it. Still, there is something different about you, Shadowling. Hope and Kel, she says, turning to one of the cloaked figures. You have a way with finding out the truth. Perhaps you could speak to the whelp. Pulling back his hood, Hopenkel's white hair gleams even in the gloom of this rainy night. He steps forward, holding out a hand, palm up toward Colmas. Hello, Colmas. Rivora has told us of you. I'm glad that you decided to return to us. I would very much like to speak with you. I have many questions, but for now, if you would please, take my hand. If it is as you say, and the goddess has sent you to us with a message, then you have nothing to fear from me. Reluctantly, Colmas looks up at Rivora again, then carefully reaches forward, taking Hopenkel's hand. Hopenkel cups his hand with his other, closing his eyes and taking a deep breath. When his eyes reopen, they glow with a bright silver light as he speaks. I can feel the touch of the goddess upon you, Shadowling. I do not know how you yet live if Dimvarga truly is dead, but you have seen Otonia some days past. Tell us, Colmas, what message does she have for us? Emboldened, Colmas looks up at him, then around at the others as well. She asked me to come to you here and to tell you that the gods are stepping in. They are getting involved. They are going to work with the Dracon Kelly. She wants you all to travel to Branshire, to the Temple of Pelor, and there the God of the Sun will meet you. He turns to Rivora. And for you, Lady Rivora, she said to say that together we will stop the Unchained. 
The four of them stand silently for a moment. Then Hope and Kel speaks up again. This is the truth, sisters. The gods have begun moving again. It is as we had hoped. Rontiana steps forward, her hood still up to protect her from the falling rain. Matonia and Pelor. But what of Prevalian? What of Deveter? She asks. Kolmos bows his head toward her in respect. I do not know for sure, Lady Bronciana, but the goddess Atonia said that they were currently undecided. She nods. I expected as much. Well, two out of three isn't so bad for now, is it? Vinrea throws back her hood, grinning slyly. Not bad at all, sister. So what say you three? Shall we head to Bradshire? I could go for a bit of sun myself. Rivora looks at Hope and Kel again. You're sure, brother? Most certainly. I can see it through his eyes. She nods. Well, then I suppose we should... She stops, suddenly, tilting her head back as she listens intently. Someone is coming, she hisses, drawing her sword. At that moment, the sound of a single horse galloping sounds around them. They step back, facing the direction of the noise. Then a whinny as the horse comes to a complete stop. They gather on the opposite side of the statue, preparing to strike. When, suddenly, a bright glow like yellow sunlight starts peeking through the trees. Stepping through the copse comes a woman, her weapons sheathed, and upon her breastplate shines the luminous sun of Palor. It glows all around them, creating a beautiful pocket of sunlight. Wow, says Pauline, as she looks up to see the bubble of sunlight dissipating the rain above their heads. They look upon her in awe for a moment. All except for Vinrea, still smirking, she steps toward Pauline. Well, well, well. It seems that the gods really want our help, don't they? I suppose we should have driven a harder bargain, she says, winking. I am Vinrea. What brings you to such a place in the dead of night? Pauline looks down at the short figure before her. Vinrea, I'm sorry. Have we met? You look very familiar to me. Oh, perhaps, my dear. I've been to Branchire a few times, and... You look like a branch shearing if I've ever seen one. Oh, that's it. You had that creepy booth set up during the Festival of the Rising Sun earlier this year, didn't you? You sold me a... She blushes. A bottle of perfume. Oh, yes, I recall. I had no idea you were a paladin, my sweet. I hope the perfume has served you well, she says, winking again. Um, well, I, I haven't used it yet, Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, she says, shaking her head and looking around her. Are you... I was visited by a stranger tonight. This is going to sound crazy, but I think it might have been Palor, like the god Palor. He told me to come here and to meet some... You five wouldn't happen to be dragons, would you? She says all at once. Minrea laughs loudly, as does Hope and Kel, <laughs> and Pronciana giggles under her hood. <laughs> Not all five of us, Hobenkill responds. But four of us, yes. We are four of the Dracon Kelly. As strange as that may be. This stranger, did he introduce himself as Zahn, perhaps? Yes, Pauline exclaims. Yes, he did. D do you know him? I do, madam. I do indeed. And your guess was correct. You have come in contact with your god at unawares this night. Pauline stares on in awe, her eyes wide. Please, miss, Ronciana speaks up. You said that Paylor told you to come here and to meet with us. Did he have a message? Pauline nods. Uh, yes, I'm sorry, yes. My name is Pauline. I am a paladin of Paylor from Branshire. I was traveling to Fallen Grove to try and help discover and stop some bad people there, but... Zahn, I mean, Palor, he told me to come here and deliver a message. He says that the gods are moving once more on Manumi, and that he wants you to meet him at the temple in Branshire. 
Oh, and he says, hello, she says, blushing again. Rivora steps toward Pauline, looking down at her. Pauline, is it? You say that you were headed to search for the enemy in Falling Grove. Exactly which enemy is that? We have reason to believe that the Unchained, as they're calling themselves, might try to attack the canopy during the autumn equinox. I mean, that's what they did in Branshire at the end of the summer solstice. So we think they may try the same thing here. I see. She stands silent for a moment, tapping her foot. Then she turns on a heel toward Hopenkel. Hope, you, Venrea, and Pronciana must go at once to Branshire. We can't leave Paylor waiting. And take this paladin with you. I will take the Shadowling, Kolmas, with me. Oh, and where will you go, Rivora? As you said, we mustn't leave Paylor waiting. I will join you soon, brother. But the Equinox is tomorrow. I'll go to the canopy, and I'll take him with me. If there is to be any sort of attack there, then I will fight with them, she says, her hand on her red sword handle. Are you sure, Rivora? One of us could come with you? No, Bronciana, that's not necessary. I expect Atonia will be there as well. I'm certain that whatever they have planned, we can handle it. Bronciana steps up, giving her a hug. Be careful, sister. We will see you soon in Branshire. All at once, Pronciana, Vinrea, and Hobenkel begin to transform, their bodies stretching and elongating into their full draconic forms. Pauline stumbles back, involuntarily afraid. Then Hobenkel leans down, his great silver nostrils breathing cold air down upon her. Climb aboard my back, Pauline. Do not fear. I won't drop you. She swallows hard, then carefully climbs her way onto his back, settling between two spikes. He turns his great neck up toward her, saying, Hold on tight. Then the three of them take off into the rainy night, flying east toward Branshire. Rivora looks again on Kolmas as he drops his eyes. She reaches forward, taking his chin and lifting his face up toward her again. That will be enough of that, Shadowling. You may once have been the dark creation of my fallen sister, but now you are something more. Let us fly to the canopy. My sword thirsts for the blood of my enemies. She leans back, her neck and shoulders bulging out as thick red scales cascade across her body, transforming her armor into a dense, impenetrable hide. Her legs crack and extend outward, falling on all fours as a great red tail forms, sliding across the grass like a serpent. Finally, her snout extends, filled with razor-sharp teeth, and her helm becomes two great red horns turned back over her head. With a roar, her enormous wings burst forth, and her transformation is complete. Kolmas bows his head once more in respect and then lithely leaps onto a wing, crawling into place on her back. With one great flap of her wings, Rivora lifts off from the earth beneath her, flying upward. But as they disappear from sight, the night and the rain descending once again around the small shrine of Atonia, no one is there to see as the statue cracks with a deep tear seeping black ichor in the stone along her cheek. It is the morning of the autumnal equinox. The streets of the canopy are alight with activity as much of Fallen Grove has gathered together to aid in the upcoming celebration. The Salch Branch is particularly heavy with traffic as people exit their homes and the few inns here to make their final preparations. Most people will make their way to the Ered Branch, where the streets will be lined with booths of foods, flowers, and numerous natural trinkets and totems, all of which are free for anyone who visits as an offering to Atonia. Within an hour of sunrise, the Salch Branch has become practically empty as everyone exits heading toward the festivities, 
and the canopy is electric with excitement and anticipation. In one of the smaller inns, however, a few stragglers are still enjoying their breakfast. The dining room at the Bending Bow Inn still has a number of visitors seated, eating quietly. The cooking and serving staff is sparse, as most have also departed for the Arid Branch, but a few still remain to take care of those that are left. One halfling girl with dark black hair tied up in a bun sets about cleaning the empty tables around the room. Her dark green apron is damp from washing dishes as she wipes down the wooden tables. To the average onlooker, she would seem entirely inconspicuous. But to the trained eye, one might notice that, as she cleans, she often glances ever so subtly toward a small table in the back of the dining hall. She continues about her cleaning, going from table to table, careful not to get so close as to gain unwanted attention from the guests. At this table in the back, there are two figures seated, halflings both. One is sipping from a steaming cup of hot tea, slowly enjoying his plate of bacon and fresh eggs. His face is marred by an ugly scar running from his right eye down his cheek to the corner of his mouth. The other is looking miserably toward a plate of eggs and bacon his own, holding a glass of orange juice between his two thumbless hands. He stares forward blankly at the plate, swirling the juice in his glass. The waitress continues to grow closer, careful not to alert anyone to her presence. Finally, she approaches a table right beside theirs to clean it. A tall elven woman dressed in a dark green cloak approaches the table, leaning down and whispering something into the ear of the shiv. He looks up at her frustratedly, then, with a huff, stands to his feet. Stay here, Miles. I'll be right back. He follows the elf across the dining room and up the stairs toward the rooms. Without a moment's hesitation, she slips over beside Miles and feigns cleaning at his table. He looks up at her and raises a hand in protest before she speaks. No, no, it's all right. It's me, Jill. We met a few days ago, just outside here. I gave you that sweet bun. Miles looks at her intently, then quickly darting his eyes around the room for onlookers. You really shouldn't be here. You need to go. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I know that man is a bad man. I know he's keeping you here against your will. I can help you. What's your name? Look, my name is Miles, but you're wrong. No one can help me. If you know what's good for you, you'll get out of here. I don't know who you are. I don't know who that guy is. But I can tell evil when I see it. He's evil. You're not. So why are you with him? I don't have a choice. I did something to save someone I care about very deeply. She was taken captive by the Shiv. That's his name, the Shiv. And I saw a way to save her and set her free, so I did. I set her free. And now she's gone, and I'm trapped. I knew what I was getting into, although... He pauses, looking down at his hands. It has certainly cost me in ways I never expected. I'm sorry for what's happened to you, but if you come with me, I can help you. That patrolman that talked to the Shiv, he's actually my brother. We're working together. We're trying to stop some bad people who want to hurt the canopy. We think they're going to do something very bad tonight. At the celebration of the Equinox, I think they might have taken my friend Saul. Wait, your friend Saul? Yes, he's missing my friend. He was supposed to come here. He wouldn't be a reddish-skinned tiefling, would he? Yes, that's him. Do you know him? Do you know where he is? Miles pauses for a second, looking around the room. The Shiv could be listening. His people could be anywhere. But as the fear threatens to overtake him, sudden strength rises within his chest. I know Saul. He went back to the Nine Hells. He and my friend, Misk. Misk? Oh, Misk. That's his sister, right? Did he find her? He did. She was being held captive by the Shiv by a blood contract. Listen. Miles pushes himself back from the table, standing to his feet. We have to go. I can explain everything, but we have to go. Right now. The Shiv, he's the one you're looking for. There's a man, Sebastian Blackfire. He's coming today. And the Shiv, he's going to help him. They're going to... He freezes, both hands going to his head as a piercing ring fills his ears, racking his mind with pain. Miles, are you all right? Suddenly, there's the sound of chairs scooting back. 
People stand all around the dining room, looking at them. What's happening? Jill says, frightened. It's too late. Miles sits back down as a dozen of them walk over to their table, grabbing Jill by the arms. Wait, stop, help! Miles holds up his arms as they grab him, dragging him from his seat as well. They take them to the entrance of the dining room where the shiv stands, leaning against the door facing. Well, well, well. What am I going to do with the two of you? As the sun reaches its point around 10 o'clock, Phil is standing out behind the bakery where Jill liked to steal her sweet rolls. She and Minnie were supposed to meet him here at this time, but Jill is nowhere to be found. He turns to see as Minnie approaches right on time. Hello, Phil. How are you? She says with a salute. Uh, I'm good. How are things? How has the patrol been going? Uh, patrolling has been great. I'm glad to hear it. Well, unfortunately, it would appear that we did not catch them. And today is the day. We're just a few hours away now from the celebration. And Nephile wants all of the leaf guard back at the Corrine by noon, no later. It will be up to us to set up a perimeter and keep an eye on things there. The ritual for the celebration will occur at 3 o'clock sharp, so we must all be in our place to protect the Corrine. And that includes you, Phil, as well as Jill. Speaking of Jill... She says, looking around. Where is she? Wasn't she supposed to meet us here? Yeah, she, she was, and she still hasn't shown... Well, maybe she's just running a little behind. I'm sure she'll be here any minute. I bet she's excited to finally be off of assignment and for things to go back to normal. I really do wish we could have found out what these Unchained are up to. Who knows? Maybe they're up to nothing. Trust me, it's not going to be nothing. Something will happen. Well, we'll be ready for them. I know your brother is doing a lot to prepare with his wards and all of that. And we'll be there to stop anyone who tries to cause trouble. They won't get through us. As the two of them continue to talk about their strategy for the day, waiting for Jill to arrive, before long 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and even 30 minutes pass, and Jill is nowhere to be found. Phil soon becomes concerned about the lateness of his sister's arrival. Minnie, I don't like this. It's it's not like Jill to be this late to something. She's always a little bit late, but this late? You're right. And with what we know about today, we can't afford to take any risks. Where might she be? Has she given you any locations or hints in her reports about where she might be? I, I don't know. This this was always our meetup spot. Okay, I'll tell you what. I've got some contacts, some others who might know something about where thieves hang out. I'll go looking and put some people on it. What will you do? The only time I've seen her with anyone, there was this there was this weird dude and then his nephew, I think. They, they were staying at the inn, so I'll probably check there. Okay, you check there. I'll get my people looking, and I'll see you at the Corrine when it's time. Don't be late, Phil. Okay, sounds good. Frantic, Phil departs from their meeting place, setting off toward the Bending Bow Inn in a hurry. The streets are still mostly empty, so Phil breaks into a run, fear building in his heart. He dashes up the steps of the inn, rushing inside. The door opens into a small entryway with a large open doorway on the left leading to the dining room. A small number of people can be seen seated, finishing their breakfast. Phil scans the room, looking for anyone to ask about Jill. A swinging door pushes open on the rear wall, and an elven woman dressed in a server's apron steps into the room, carrying a tray of food. Phil approaches her, waiting as she finishes delivering the food. She tucks the tray under her arm, turning toward Phil with a smile. Hello, sir. Could I interest you with some breakfast this morning? Or some lunch? Uh, I'm looking for someone, if you could help me with that. She's a halfling, um, just like me. She has purple hair, a purple cloak. That's the best I can give. You you know her if you've seen her. I see. Uh, is, is this your friend? It's my sister. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I haven't seen anyone with purple hair, as you said, a, a halfling. N- not this morning or at all that I can recall. Okay, um, well, she was with some people. Have you seen a, a guy, short, scar down his face, white hair, 
walks around with this guy with bandages wrapped around his hands. No, I'm sorry. That doesn't ring any bells. I wish I could be of more help. Yeah, so do I. Phil turns and exits the inn, frustrated, concerned. He sets off in a hurry toward the Ered branch. The clock is ticking and he has to go to the Corrine, but he cannot go without first finding Jill. As he runs down the street, people looking on in surprise, he whispers a prayer to Atonia. Atonia, please. This is your domain, your home. We're trying to help you. Please let Jill be okay. Her big brother, the one that's supposed to look out for her, me. Atonia, if you can hear me, Please help me find her. The Corrine is full to the brim with people, mostly elves, halflings, and gnomes from all across Fallen Grove. The Inner Sanctum has become a lush, gorgeous garden of autumnal flora in honor of the goddess Atonia. People are climbing along the walkways, grown up through the trees that fill the room, taking seats on mushroom platforms, and singing songs of Atonia. A sense of joy and comfort permeates the atmosphere and the refreshing sense of autumn fill their nostrils. For one halfling, however, this is not such a time of peace and relaxation. Paldo, caretaker of the Corrine, quickly crosses toward the gate to the Loss district, where Bill stands talking with one of the leaf guard. Spotting him from across the room, Paldo scurries up to him in a hurry. Is everything in place? Is everything good? Yeah, uh, everything should be good. I just went through and checked all the wards and stuff. Uh, I can see you've got the one set up here at the Lost Gate. Uh, what about the Ered Gate? Yeah. And the Sulch? Yes. Have you tested them? Yeah. This place is going to be full of people, Bill. Are you sure that you'll be able to hear these wards if they go off? Listen, I promise you, I will be able to hear them. It's it's not something I can miss. You know, it's, it's like one of those sounds that... It just, it's terrible. Yeah, I, I promise you. Like, if something bad goes through those wards, I'm gonna know. Okay? Those screams and stuff do not stop. And all those people walking through now, they're not interfering with it or anything like that? No, no. So, the way it works is when something good goes through those wards, a happy sound goes off. So, you know, something that reminds me of like candle bells or my family or, you know, something like that. Okay. But when something bad goes through those wards, I wasn't joking when I said that to Nephi L. It's a very loud, very loud screaming. Okay, I'm just nervous, you know. I mean, we are minutes away now, and if anything is going to happen, it's now. And I've got so much to take care of, and all the people coming in, and oh, goodness, I, I have to go. Listen, I trust you. Everything is fine. The leaf guard are here. Uh, uh, everything's fine. And he skitters away in a hurry. As Paldo takes off once again into the crowd, Bill makes one more round to each of the gates to the Corrine, double and triple checking his wards one last time. Exhausted from the work, Bill starts to feel the drain that these wards have put on him. Even with the help he's received from the druids of the Leaf Guard, it's taken most of his spiritual energy to summon and manage these wards and spells. But there's no time for rest now, as the clock grows ever closer to three. The excitement and anticipation is palpable throughout the Corrine, and the chatter falls to a low whisper as Nephiel can be seen climbing the winding footpaths of the trees toward the tall mushroom platform in the center. At that moment, Bill's ears perk up at a familiar sound from the direction of the Solch Gate. Turning and straining to look through the crowd, he sees Phil shoving his way through and calling out his name. Bill! Bill, where are you? Bill takes off, pushing through the crowd to meet his brother halfway. Phil, what's the matter? Why are you... Is everything okay? Bill, it's it's Jelly. She's gone missing. We have to go now. We have to find her. Wait, what? What? That doesn't make you... What do you mean, she's gone missing? Look, I don't have time to explain. She's been helping us look for the Unchained, and she was supposed to meet me and Minnie this morning. Wait, what? What happened to we were leaving her... 
out of all of this and we were having her do paperwork and stuff like that, she wasn't supposed to be out there in the field. She wasn't supposed to be helping y'all work. She was supposed to be safe. Bill, we don't have time for this now. She was supposed to meet us at noon and she didn't show up. I've been looking everywhere for her, but I can't find her. And there was this suspicious looking halfling and Bill, I think they might have taken her. Bill looks around at all the people in the Corrine. Whispers are starting to spread now as Nephiel steps onto the central platform. Phil, what do you mean? I I can't just leave now. I've got all these... I have to take care of these wards. This is my job. What am I supposed to do? I can't just leave. What are you talking about you can't leave, Bill? It's Jelly. It's our baby sister. We have to find her now. And finding her won't matter if the whole entire Unchained show up. What am I supposed to do? What... What happens if they show up and I'm not here? Then the whole commune is just dead. Everyone dies. I can't leave, Phil. Not until the ceremony is over. It could be too late by then. What will you do if she dies, Bill, huh? What will you do if we lose her because of you? He says, shoving Bill. Bill stares in awe back at his brother, fury building at his words and the fear rising in his gullet. At that moment, Nephiel's voice rings loudly throughout the Corrine. Welcome, friends. Welcome, brothers and sisters. Welcome, all peoples of Manami. The hour has come, finally, for us to honor our Lady of the Wood, the Goddess of Autumn and of Fallen Grover, our dear Otonia. Please, let there be silence in the Corrine as we begin with the ceremony. I thank you. But before the ceremony can begin, something terrible bursts out in Bill's ears. This is it. The screams. The wards are sounding off. It's too late, Phil. They're here. Something set them off. Oh, the wards. Oh my gods, it's screaming in my ears! Suddenly there's a loud commotion from across the room, and Nephiel turns on the spot, now up on the mushroom platform, as an enormous brown bear comes bursting in through the Ered Gate, roaring as it leaps, transforming into a tiny red-haired gnome. Her voice is larger than life as it rings out magically across the Corrine. Fire! There are flames everywhere! To arms! Fallen Grove, I repeat, Fallen Grove is on fire! Minutes before Minnie's warning in the Corrine, Rivora and Colmas are running through the forest east of the canopy. Their movements are swift, beyond the ability of mere mortals. Rivora maintains a lead, but... Colmas holds his own, keeping steady the distance between them. Much of the local fauna stops and stares as they run past, unthreatened but curious. Colmas calls out from behind. Lady Rivora, we are drawing near. We should approach carefully. The Leaf Guard must undoubtedly be keeping the watch. I am not concerned with the Leaf Guard, Colmas. The hour of the equinox is upon us. We would have arrived already if I could have flown just one more hour in the dark. Suddenly, out of nowhere, an explosion of dark, purple energy erupts in Rivora's path. She deftly sidesteps the blast, drawing her sword in the same swift movement. Colmas leaps onto a nearby tree, hopping from place to place as more of these pocketed explosions appear, trying to take him out. With a flourish, he dives forward, swinging off of a branch and sliding onto the ground in a battle stance as he draws forth his Odachi. Rivora lifts her head, sniffing the air, then snarls. I can smell you, tiefling. Step into the light. A blast of crimson flame licks up around her sword with a flash of burning red light. Stepping out from behind a large oak comes a striking figure. She's dressed in a gorgeous purple gown, which sparkles in the red light. The slit on one side comes up to her thigh and her long, luscious hair is draped over one shoulder. Her rose-gold skin takes on an evil hue in the red light of Rivora's sword as she moves both hands in a circular motion, black and purple fire glowing from her palms. Hello. 
You must be Rivora of the Fury. I've heard so much about you. I'm sorry to be meeting you under such hostile circumstances, but I'm afraid I can't let you go any further. Rivora chuckles, looking back at Colmas. I don't know who you are, or who you think you are, but my friend and I here will be going to the canopy, and you won't be stopping us. She holds her red sword aloft, pointing it in the direction of this tiefling. You know my name, then you know that I am one of the Dracon Kelly. And you are nothing more than a nuisance. A fly buzzing in my ear. I recommend that you remove yourself from my path immediately. You do not understand what I am capable of. Oh, to the contrary. I understand quite well just what you're capable of. The tales of your ferocity are nothing short of legendary, she says, her hands continuing in their circular motion. It is you, Rivora, who has underestimated her opponent. She thrusts her palms forward, blasting black and purple flames at the two of them. Rivora spins, swiping her sword upward at an angle, sending a long curve of crimson flame to intercept the blast. Simultaneously, Kolmos dashes toward the enemy, leaping into the air and slashing down with his great Odachi. His sword strikes into the tree behind where she stood as she disappears before him, appearing at his back. With a sweep of her tail, she flips his feet upward, and with a crashing palm, she drives him down to the ground with shocking speed and force. The air is driven from his lungs as his back cracks on a thick root, the sword slipping from his grasp. With another flourish, she sends him flying toward Rivora as both of their flames extinguish in the air before her. He slides to a stop at Rivora's feet. Grunting in pain, he tries to lift himself up, but Rivora places a hand on his shoulder, stopping him. Stay back, Kolmas. She steps toward her devilish enemy, scowling. If you want a demonstration, Hellspawn, then I will give you a demonstration. But before I do, tell me, who are you? I like to put a face to my victims before I devour them, she says through gritted teeth, now sharp as knives with red fire glowing behind them. The tiefling grins, holding her chin high. I am Naphtalia, queen of the nine hells. And if I say you will go no further, then my dear, you will go no further. Rivora roars her body changing quickly into the form of a great red dragon. As she does, Neftalia grasps the pendant around her neck, and the black swirling symbol within begins to turn as she speaks a fell incantation. Her voice is obscured by the crashing and roaring of Rivora as she rears back her head in full form. But before she can strike, Neftalia throws her head back, cackling as the earth between the two of them cracks and pits, crumbling and falling in on itself. Hot, bright magma churns up from the moss-covered ground, devouring the earth between them in a perfect circle. Then, bursting up from the magma comes an enormous black arm, cracked with molten lava glowing underneath. Then another arm, and then a great head with golden ram's horns. It pulls itself up from within the earth, a towering devil with black molten skin. Its eyes and mouth burn with a deep purple flame. In one hand, it holds a wicked black scythe, its blade lined with the same purple fire. In the other, a flame whip burning gold and black. Its fiery whip cracks the air above them, and with a roar, two wings of golden flame burst from its back. Rivora steps forward, standing over Kolmas. He feels the earth around him tremble as she hunches down, and then with terrifying speed, launches toward the devil beast. They meet in the air with a crash, and an inferno of red, black, and purple flame bursts out from them. 
A tangle of claw and blade, whip and tooth. They crash through the forest as the heat of their power ignites the world around them. Screams ring out across the Corrine as dozens of figures in black cloaks charge in from every gate. Many are running, crying out in terror. Others have drawn their weapons, the Leaf Guard coming out in full force to face these invaders. Within moments, the once serene and beautiful scene is clouded with the scent of blood and the sound of battle. Bill is on his knees, holding his hands over his ears. A small bit of blood trickles out from his left ear as Phil grabs him by the shoulders, pulling him up to eye level. Phil is yelling in his face, but Bill can't hear him over the ringing that envelops his hearing. In a moment of clarity, he reaches down onto his chest, proclaiming an activating word of power. The symbol of Paylor grows bright on his breastplate, and all at once the explosions of light and power set off all around the gates to the Corrine. As the light fills the area, many of the invaders are dispatched, rendered unconscious. The Leaf Guard puts this opportunity to use, taking advantage of the moment. Druids and rangers alike call out, driving their enemies back. Bill shakes himself, the screaming finally gone from his ears. He turns toward Phil, but his brother has drawn his double-headed axe and rushed into the fray. The Corrine is now filled with the black-cloaked figures, mostly elves and halflings, fighting anyone who gets in their way. Bill draws his long sword and shield, rushing to his brother's aid. Swords clash. Animals roar as druids attack in their wild shapes. Blasts of power fly across the open Corrine. The pathways of wood grown from the great tree are filled with battle, brother against brother. High up, atop a great mushroom platform, Nephiel wields two curved blades. Three cloaked figures surround him, weapons drawn and closing in. He leaps into the air, spinning, and draws both blades into the chest of one attacker. Kicking him off of the platform, he turns as the other two rush forward. With a swipe of his hand, a great vine swings down from the tree overhead, sending both crashing to the ground below. Nephiel steps up onto the edge of the platform looking out over the chaos below. Crashing, blasting, screaming, clashing. The noise rings in his ears, fury rising in his chest. They could have stopped this. They should have stopped this. Who is the master of this plot? Nephiel kneels down, punching both hands down into the floor of his mushroom platform. He draws up vines and tendrils from within, standing tall. His eyes alight with orange light as the tree of the Corrine comes to life at his touch. Vines, branches, and thorns burst out from all around the area. Invaders in black cloaks around the room cry out as they are snatched from the floor and flung headlong across the Corrine, crashing into the walls. Others are engulfed in thorns, crying out as they're pierced through with their great foot-long spikes. Nephiel's head turns from side to side striking again and again, wielding the untapped power that his position grants as the archdruid of Fallengrove. The hubris of these invaders. Did they think they could come on a day such as this, the most holy day of their goddess, at the peak of her power, and destroy their sanctuary? Within moments, the crowd is thinned by the might of the nature surrounding them. More and more people join the fray, fighting back the invaders. Cheers are heard from around the room as it seems they will rout them completely, pushing them back. The archdruid smiles, light shining in his eyes as he sees their victory at hand. But then, a deep, icy cold falls on his heart. Nephiel turns his head to the Sulch Gate. A thick, dark aura permeates the wide doorway. Something moves within the darkness, but he cannot see it. Fear pierces through his heart as he sees his leaf guard rush toward this new threat, but swiftly falter, 
stumbling onto their knees, their hands around their throats, retching, coughing. They fall on their faces as the darkness expands, rolling over the Corrine like a fog. His jaw drops in horror. Flee! He cries out, his voice amplified throughout the sanctuary. Flee while you still can! Everyone, get out! But it's too late. The air turns thick as the black fog spreads across the Corrine in moments. The sound of buzzing fills the area. Nephiel recognizes the sound of millions of tiny insects, their wings beating as they swarm inside the darkness. He can no longer see all of the people below, but he can hear the screams and the retching as horror and chaos descends upon them all. Nephiel stands frozen as the fog thins, revealing hundreds of people below, choking, prone on the floor, both enemy and ally alike. He comes to himself, summoning his power and preparing to call for a great wind to drive this evil away. But before he can speak the word, he spots something flying toward him out of the corner of his eye. He leaps forward to escape the projectile, but a moment too late, as a black spike stabs through his leg. He cries out in pain, then, stumbling forward, he falls into the black cloud beneath. The stinging, biting insects engulf him, and his blood boils beneath his skin. He retches as his body crashes onto the hard floor beneath, succumbing to the same fate as the rest. The fog thins, but the insects continue their work, buzzing and biting as the deep black aura pulls back toward the Sulch Gate. Stepping through the darkness, in the opening comes a tall tiefling, his skin as black as obsidian. He is dressed in a high-collared coat, pitch black, buttoned down to his waist, then it spreads outward over his legs. He marches forward, the natural wooden floor turning a charred black beneath every footstep. In his right hand, he wields an otherworldly staff, the bone handle a stark contrast to the wicked, color-shifting blade at its tip. In his left hand, he holds a large chain leading back into the shadows behind him. He continues forward, each step blackening the floor beneath him. The chain pulls tight, and he drags forward a large cage. Within, lying on her back, is a thin, emaciated figure, her coffee-colored skin almost paling in the sunlight. Blackfire walks deeper into the Corrine, each footstep another click of the clock, counting down their doom. The cage of Atonia drags across the wooden floor behind him, her small grunts of pain barely heard over the din of the swarm. Blackfire stops suddenly, peering down through the black. He reaches, lifting a weakened Nephiel from the floor. He hoists him over his shoulder, yanking the chain tight again, and makes his way along the wooden path up toward the mushroom platform overhead. Beneath one side of the wooden path, outside of Blackfire's view, a small glow of yellow, golden power flashes, shaking his head and wiping the bile from his lips. Bill rises up onto his knees. The insects around him fall down to the floor, dead, and the rest fly away from him. Quietly, he crawls forward to Phil, who lays on the floor, groaning. Bill puts his hands on Phil's head and chest, then straining, he summons a bit of his remaining power to heal him. Phil's eyes flutter open, looking up as the yellow light extinguishes the plague-ridden vermin on his body. Bill motions with his hand for Phil to stay silent, then points upward toward the wooden walkway over their head. Blackfire steps out onto the open stage, high above the sick, incapacitated masses below. He drops the chain from his hand, gripping Nephiel by the neck. He lifts him up before them all as the sickness lessens inside them. Cease with your retching and look upon me, children. The moment of your death can wait a bit longer. This is your champion, your great protector, your arch-druid. It saddens me to say I am not impressed. 
I will take over the ceremony from here, little elf. He turns Nephael to face him, his body hanging limply as his eyes flutter. Oh, do not worry. I promise to do my very best. Although, I am sorry to say, you won't be here to witness it, he says, a wicked grin spreading across his face. With a twist of his wrist, a crack is heard across the quarry as Nephi's neck is crushed beneath his grip. A small gasp of air escapes his lungs as his eyes go dim. Cries of anguish can be heard across the Corrine as Blackfire tosses his body aside and falls to the ground below. The hour indeed has come, children of Manumi. The hour of your reckoning. You are nothing short of parasites, invaders. You have squatted on this world for too long, and the day of your cleansing has arrived. You have come to this place to celebrate your goddess, Otonia, the usurper, the trickster wretch. Well, here she is. He lifts his hand and the door of the cage clangs open. Otonia floats up and out to him, where he grabs her neck in his hand. Gasps and cries ring out from below once more as he holds her thin, sickly frame up before them. He laughs as he squeezes, and she begins to struggle, clawing at his obsidian hands, his long fingers unmovable. Behold your goddess, children of Fallen Grove. Behold the might of your creator. He throws his head back in laughter, his eyes closed as he squeezes and she squirms. He doesn't see as a small figure suddenly rises up behind him on the wooden path. With a silent fury, without a single warning, Bill Hicks, mustering all of his might, launches his golden trident toward the back of the wicked tiefling before him. Blackfire's laughter is cut short as the sharp point drives into his flesh. A dark yell escapes him, his breath interrupted by the protruding golden spikes in his chest. A light of bright yellow power bursts out from the trident, burning the flesh around the wound. He roars in pain as Bill's divine smite sears through his flesh. And in that moment of surprise, his grip loosens, and Altonia falls onto the mushroom floor beneath his feet. The moment her skin touches the platform... Every tree in the Corrine comes to life. Vines whip around in every direction. The walls fold and the floors churn as the great oak itself comes to her defense. She is swiftly taken from him, flying from branch to branch as the tree carries her up and away. Lessening their sickness in his hubris, many around the floor have begun to rise slowly and weakly to their feet. Several begin fleeing, rushing out the gates, while others gather their weapons and their magics, firing toward Blackfire up above them. He roars again, his fury radiating off of him like a hot flame. The black aura spreads out from him again, intercepting the attacks from below. He reaches behind, yanking the trident from his back in one sharp tug. He coughs a spurt of black ecor, bringing the weapon up into his vision. His dark, empty eyes turn toward the short figure standing just some feet away from him. Bill is breathing heavily, having poured the last dregs of his power into his attack. Well done, halfling. You have cost me pain. That is something very few mortals can claim. And now, for your reward. Thick, black, ink flows out from his palm around the handle of the trident as he lifts his arm, preparing to throw it. Go to your god, servant of Pelor. Tell him I'll come for him soon. With frightening speed, he launches the blackened trident at Bill. Bill closes his eyes, ready for the strike. 
Suddenly, Bill is knocked back and his breath driven from his lungs as his brother flies into him, sending them both off of the platform, where they land hard onto the floor beneath. Bill quickly rolls over, picking himself up. Looking around, he sees Phil lying on the floor a few feet away, the now black trident buried deep in his chest. Phil, no! Bill rushes toward him, placing both hands on the weapon. He tries to summon his power to heal him, but there's nothing left. The black ichor from the weapon spreads, seeping into Phil's flesh. He cries out in pain as the corruption burns at him, spreading over his chest. The black, inky power spreads, closing around Phil's throat. Phil, what are you... Come on. Hey, hey, now it's not to be playing any games, all right? I need you to get up. Come on. Let's go. Phil, I'm... I'm sorry. Please don't die. No, don't... We should have just left. It's all right, Bill. It, it, it's okay. Uh, it, it's not your fault, Bill. Just just promise me. Find her. Mom and Paul, they can't lose their baby girl, too. Great tears drip from Bill's eyes onto his brother's forehead. He takes him in his arms, hugging him tightly. I will, Phil. I swear. I will find her. He feels Phil nod. Hot tears on his arms. And then he becomes still. Phil. No. Phil. Wake up. Wake up, Phil. Please. Hey, Lord. Please don't let him die. The wooden walkways and platforms above them are torn apart. The great oak tree that upholds the Corrine creaks and groans as an enormous fell creature begins tearing it apart. The black fire, with its many arms and legs, rends and tears, breaks and destroys, clawing its way up the walls toward its prey. His great swirling antlers turn dark power pouring out all around him. Every eye that looks upon him turns in madness, running, screaming, scrambling to escape his wrath. With one of his horrible angled legs, he breaks a trunk free from the tree as it carries the goddess upward from him. It falls, crashing downward, but he's too quick. Skittering onto the wall like some hellish arachnid, he swipes her free from the branches with a terrible clawed hand. He leaps down again onto the floor beneath, holding her up to his elongated face. His great toothy maw grins as she looks up at him, weakly, drained. Let us be done with this, he says, holding up the spear in one of his right hands. For Kumtat, father of the gods, king of chaos, master of all realms, I sacrifice this daughter of creation. Let her chain be broken, her kingdom turned to ash. What was changed will be as the tree around him is falling, broken, and every soul flees, he lifts the spear and then drives it down between the bright orange eyes of Otonia. Not a sound escapes her as the spear pierces her forehead. Her murderer releases her falling back with his arms open. She levitates in place for a few moments, her eyes wide, suspended between life and death. Then blinding orange light bleeds out from around the blade, spreading as her skin cracks down from the weapon all across her body, 
and then 